Our text for today comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and then 20 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking by the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all, all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So today, if you didn't, if you didn't already know by that text, uh, we are continuing our series where we're looking at the story of the Bible because we believe that the Bible, though it is diverse in structure and form, uh, communicates one narrative, one story that, uh, that is important for us to understand if we're going to read the Bible and understand it well. This year at Grace Community Church, we're reading through the Bible in what we're calling the Year of Biblical Literacy. Uh, if you've been reading along with us, uh, you are in Leviticus. Um, just keep going, guys. Uh, it's really good. Uh, and uh, if you haven't been reading along with us and you want to, this is a great time to start. You can either go uh, on your phone and download the Read Scripture app, or you can grab uh, our reading list, uh, our, our reading uh, plan on the coffee bar on your way out of church today. But I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that, to take up uh, regular time in the scriptures as a healthy spiritual practice, a rhythm in your life. And, I I tr and trust me, you're going to run across some weird stuff that'll be interesting at the very least. All right? All right. So the whole premise of this series is that we need to understand the sweep and the scope of Scripture if we're really going to understand the story well. Uh, we can easily pick out little bits and pieces from the story of Scripture, and we can read them in a way that actually isn't helpful if we don't understand the whole picture. And this week we're looking at the second major plot point, the second major act, if you will, in the story of the Bible, which is... Uh, the second act after creation, which is the fall. The fall. Who's familiar with the fall? You can raise your hand if you've heard that term before. 
We talked about it last week, about how God created the world, right? And meant, uh, and, that, and how that meant that everything that God created was good, and that God was good. But the, the goodness of creation and the goodness of God that we saw reflected in the story last week would beg the question, why is everything so jacked up, right? It does kind of beg the question from time to time. Why does the world feel so broken? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Uh, why do I get a stomach ache after I eat too many buffalo wings on Super Bowl Sunday, right? These are all questions, and we will get the answer to that question today. Uh, you say the answer to that question, Nick, is to close your mouth, and that would be the right, that would be the right answer. Uh, the, and the truth of the matter is, though, that we know this instinctively, right? When we think about evil, when we think about brokenness, when we think about sin and where it came from, we can talk about those things as though they were external to us, right? We can talk about, like, they are out there. The coronavirus is out there somewhere, and I don't know what it does, and I, <laughs> and I don't know what it will do to me. Uh, but apparently in China, they built a hospital in 10 days to deal with it. Uh, you can go on the BBC and look at that time lapse. It's amazing. But... Uh, but when we think about evil, we sometimes think of it out here. But today what I want to talk about and what I want to think about when we talk about the fall is the kind of internal bent that I think we all feel if we're being honest with ourselves. We all feel in some senses though we are a, divi a divided self. Why is my heart pulled in directions that I, will, that I know will lead me down paths that I don't want to go in, right? It's an interesting question. And yet we all feel, I think, this kind of bent in our souls, that our souls are in, in some ways not what they were created to be. And the Bible does have an answer to this question, but I think we will see today that when we look at the fall, uh, there is more than just an explanation in the scriptures for why bad stuff happens and why uh, humans are the way they are and just that just kind of leaves us there. The story of the Bible is so much more sophisticated and it's so much more interconnected than just giving us an answer to that question this morning. We will see today that, the fall, that in the fall, sin enters the world and things get very messy, trouble, pain, death difficulty, despair are, are, are all a result of the fall. But if the fall is just an explanation of why the world is the way it is, that can leave us hopeless, can't it? If somebody, we've probably heard this before. If, if you have given an explanation for your suffering and that, suff and that explanation has no hope at the end of it, that leads to despair, doesn't it? But in the Bible, what we actually have is an explanation of our suffering that leads to hope in some significant sense, particularly in the story of Jesus, which is where we're getting in the story of the Bible. The story does not leave us in a hopeless condition, but rather it directs us to something bigger that God is doing in the story of the Bible. So while the fall is, in, in a sense, an explanation of our current state, it is not the final word. Praise God. Praise God. So if you have your Bibles with us, could you open to Genesis 3 with me? Now, to set the scene a little bit for us and to a little bit of a refresher for what we talked about last week, Genesis 1 and 2 are all about creation, about an all-good and all-powerful God creating space, time, plants, trees, volvos, all of it, right? 
This is, and in the story, in Genesis 1 and 2, it seems like the story is swimming along, that everything seems to be going pretty good. God order, orders the world. He makes it a lovely home for humanity. He even plants a garden, and he puts man and woman in it, and he says, tend this, help it to grow, which is a beautiful commission that he gives to humanity. God says to these two image bearers, you are the ones who are called to represent me on the earth. So do what I do. This is what God says in essence. Do what I do. Be creative. Make things beautiful. Help the world grow. Not bad when you think about it. Basically, add order on top of order, beauty on top of beauty. And so Adam and Eve apparently set to this work. Adam names all the animals, right, as a part of this uh, endeavor. But Adam and Eve, quickly in the story, are confronted with a choice, aren't they? A choice. Back in chapter 2 of Genesis, God says this to Adam. He says in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it you will certainly die. You will certainly die. So there is this tension that arises in the story, right? Everything is good and great and wonderful, and then all of a sudden, what? <laughs> certainly die? What's going on here? There's this tension that arises in the story. Adam and Eve are called by God to be his representatives, but they are also given a kind of choice, a kind of choice. Uh, by the, pre the very presence of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are presented with a choice. And notice that this choice is not whether to simply eat fruit or not, right? We, we could read this story and we could go, gosh, all of that for an apple or whatever, a mango? What? That's not the point of the story, guys. I know that's the, all the pictures, but uh, it, th this is not about a simple act of eating a piece of fruit, is it? It's far, more lar it's far larger than that. Uh, the choice, in essence, and th this will be on the screen, is to partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil, or, they, or Adam and Eve could choose to define good and evil on their own terms, attempting to rule the world as they see fit, right? This is functionally the choice that they are presented with. And this is the choice that, this, that what the scriptures call the serpent, the shadowy figure that pops up in verse 3 of chapter 3, present, presents to them as well. This is what he says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? You must not eat from the tree in the garden. And right here, the serpent, notice what the serpent does. The serpent sows seeds of mistrust. Seeds of mistrust. The fall begins, or the cascading effects of the fall begins with mistrust of God's goodness. The serpent suggests that God's command was not given for human benefit, but to withhold some type of good from them, right? This is what he suggests. Now, this is interesting because sometimes when we read the book of Genesis or when we read the Bible in general, what we, when we read a command of God, or we could see this as a kind of, ar we could see it as a kind of arbitrary command that God gives to Adam and Eve to obey him, 
to just simply obey, right? Here's a rule. God put a rule down, and Adam and Eve are called to follow that rule. And if they transgress that rule, then there's punishment, right? This is the natural kind of order of the way. Our law-based minds think in these terms, don't they? They think about the, com- the, the command that God gave to Adam and Eve uh, was just that. It was a command. It was a law. It was, it was arbitrary. It was something that was separate from them, and they had to follow it or else they were going to get the axe, right? But that is not at all what's happening in this passage. Notice that God asks what God actually asks of Adam and Eve. He asks them to trust him. The difference between obeying someone and trusting someone is huge, isn't it? Just look at the relationship they had with God. God did not want humans to obey him because of his power and his authority over him. That is not God's modus operandi. He wanted them to know his character, to live with him in relationship, and then obey based on that bond of trust. It's a far different thing, is it, than following some kind of arbitrary rules. We see in chapter 3, verse 3, that God had created a place where he could dwell with his people. God dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden. This, this, God's goal was not simply to put them in a place and give them a job and then give them some rules to follow. His purpose, his goal, was to create a place where Adam and Eve could flourish, where they could have meaningful work, and they could remain in uh, dynamic relationship with him. This is what God's goal was. And yes, God does give them a choice here. He does. He gives them choice. But the presence of a choice, and I think we know this both practically and philosophically, is not itself evil, right? Freedom of choice is actually a necessity in order to have love. Uh, I'm married. Uh, Yes, sorry, I don't know why I smiled like that. Uh, uh, And my wife and I made a free choice to marry one another, right? If she did not choose to marry me, but was forced into the relationship, I may be able to love her, right? But her love for me would not probably be genuine, because she would not, because she would have been coerced into that relationship, right? Uh, A coerced relationship is a relationship that lays below the level of love, doesn't it? God did not want robots. He wanted real and true relationship with humanity, and thus humanity had had to be free to choose something other than God, even if God knew that the alternative choice would not be good for them. This is what relationship requires. And humanity chose to go their own way. Choosing not to trust in the relationship that they had with God, but instead choosing to define good and evil on their own, trying to rule the world as they saw fit. This is what happened. Now picking up uh, in verse 6 here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This passage is the genesis of all of your dreams about forgetting to wear pants to work. Uh, This is what happened. They were just going, they were going about their business. They're like, I forgot to wear my pants. Uh, Sorry. Uh, 
And this, <laughs> this story has been played out a thousand times, hasn't it? We are enticed by our desires, right? This is what happens to Adam and Eve. We are enticed by our desires. Our emotions lie to us. We've played this out, right? And quickly we come to find that things that we thought looked desirable are actually a kind of trap for our souls, right? We know this story. And from this point, from this point in the story, right on down to really our day, sin and death and pain and all of it enter the world. Because humans were never meant, they were never created to set the parameters for good and evil for ourselves. We, weren't, we don't have the capacity to do such a thing. Humans were called to flourish within the world that God made intimately connected to God in relationship, and then to go out from that place of relationship and live as his representatives, his icons, his images in the world. This is what we are called to do. And so the question is for us practically this morning, what are the, what were, what are, what are the practical effects of this original sin, of this fall for us? Because when we read the story in, in Genesis, it can kind of all feel like a little bit of a fairy tale. It can feel slightly proverbial, right? Like, it's just a proverb. It tells us the truth about who we are or our experience. But, but we don't think of it as having like real world effects on us, especially in our day and age, I think. The idea that there, is a, that there is sin in the world and that that sin is real and true and that it in some sense resides inside of me somewhere is an idea that we seem to be distancing ourselves from more and more and more. And so the, the story of the Bible tells us really that there are a lot of effects of the fall um, and really too many to mention. Uh, but this morning, I want to kind of, I kind of want to center in on what we see in the scriptures as the, pr what I think to be the primary effects that the fall articulates. What, what was this uh, primordial sin of Adam and Eve? What did it cause? What did it bring about? And how has it affected us? So I'm going to walk through this briefly with us. So the first effect that we see of this original sin of the fall is a corrupted nature, is a corrupted nature. This is how the theologian Stanley Grenz puts it. He says, our human experience is clear. Although we on occasion do what is right and indeed live in accordance with certain aspects of God's law, our human nature has been corrupted. The source of our sinful attitudes and actions is not merely the uh, is not merely the external environment. Rather, they issue forth from the inner core of our being, from our human hearts, from our human hearts. Now, this is a bit of a controversial statement, isn't it? Because many people in our culture want to believe that humans are at their core, at their very nature, good, right? We naturally want to believe this about ourselves. I don't know about you, but I want to believe it about myself, right? But we are, uh, but that the bad, and then we want to believe that since we're at the, our very core good, that the bad stuff that occurs, the bad stuff that we do, is, uh, is, is based on the corrupting force of external forces. Like, so I am in my very core good, and then it is things that happen to me from the outside that cause me uh, to act in ways that aren't good, right? Or to send me in the wrong directions. This is what we want to believe. This is what we, this is what we're trying to tell ourselves whenever we, whenever our kid gets in trouble and we say, they just hang out with the wrong crowd, right? <laughs> um, sorry, I apologize. Um, but uh, we want to believe that it's external forces that cause us to do bad things rather than something that issues from our very core. Now, many of the foundational minds of the American experiment believed that humans uh, were not 
in and of themselves corrupted, but rather were in and of themselves good. And that, but rather that we were susceptible to evil forces from our outside world. And this is part of the reason this narrative is so popular in the United States. Uh, names like uh, Walt Whitman and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and Thomas Jefferson all believed this popular idea. They believed that if you could just get away from the corrupting forces of society, if you could just go out into nature, if you could get on a mountaintop, if you could get into the desert long enough by yourself and kind of cleanse yourself of the corrupting forces of human society, that the essential goodness of our internal, of our internal nature would uh, kind of shone through and we would be free right? This is what all the existentialist philosophers and poets uh, of the early days of America believed. And while this idea is understandable, and it's even inspiring, and you know, I like all of you, like, I got to get to a mountain sometimes, right? It's a good thing to get out into nature and to get away from the hubbub, and God does speak to us in that place. But I think that we are all laid down with this idea in our culture, and, and, the reason we, and, and the reason we want to believe that we are in our very core's good is another kind of cultural assumption. And that cultural assumption that is, if something is not 100% good, it has no intrinsic value, right? Part of this might be due to our consumer culture and the fact that as soon as my iPhone is one generation too old, like I throw it away, right? Or as soon as that thing in my house gets a scratch on it, I can't mend that scratch or I can't work with that plate. I got to get rid of it, right? We have, this, we have this kind of utilitarian belief in our, in our world that if something is slightly bent, if it is not perfect, if it is not inherently good, then it must be discarded, right? This is a, this is a byproduct of, post of a post-industrial country. And the reality is that... Uh, we, we believe that if something is not good, it has no value. And now, Christians do not associate the corruption of our nature, and this, might be, this is really important to get at, Christians do not associate the corruption of our nature with our value. Some might think that, some might think that, but Christians have never thought that. that, just be, that we've never thought that just because a person is sinful that they have no value, Right? That's not the way Christians think. Humans are not infinitely valuable because they are good. That's not why we have value. Humans are infinitely valuable because they are loved by God. Because God loves us. That's what gives us our value. Christianity views humans as both unimaginably valuable and irreparably broken. This is the Christian, uh, this is the Christian view of humanity. And this is important because it is... Uh, it is only if this is true that the story, and specifically the coming of Jesus later in the story, makes sense. Makes sense to us. If humanity is inherently good, then all we would need is kind of some behavior modification, right? All we would need is some rules. All we would need is some, for a guide, a spirit guide to kind of come and tell us what the right thing to do is. And then we would just do those right things and then everything would be fine. It's just behavior modification, we would just need to go to those mountains and clean out the cobwebs, and then we would be fine, right? And if humanity is not unimaginably valuable, why would God in Jesus go to such lengths to defeat death and win our deliverance? Why would he go to the cross if we weren't that valuable? 
So th this, this is the only way to make sense of the work of Christ on the cross. If we are broken beyond repair, and if we are valuable beyond imagination. And so clinging to the, this, this belief or this doctrine, if you will, that humanity is broken, that we are bent, that we are corrupted in some sense, is central to understanding the rest of the story, the rest of the story that's going to come next. And so that's the first effect of the fall, that human nature has been twisted, that it's been corrupted, that it has caused us all kinds of problems. But even though... Uh, this situation that we all experience of the brokenness of the world is apparent to all of us, and it seems like this is probably the biggest or the most important uh, ramification of the fall of Adam and Eve's original sin. I don't think that's what the Bible says the primary problem is. It's interesting, right? I don't think that the primary problem that the story of the Bible lines out is that you and I are broken and in need of mending, right? The, the problem that God ultimately came to fix is, I think, a little different than that. And I, uh, here, I'll show you. Uh, ver turn to verse 8 and 9 of chapter 3. He says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Again, the first instance of hide-and-seek ever in the history of the world. Did you think that God didn't know where Adam and Eve were, right? This is like playing hide-and-seek with your children who just cover their face, right? This is the same thing. The cool of the day was this time when God would walk in the garden in communion with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had been in this beautiful and loving relationship with God, and now this beautiful relationship that they had, they had had with God is fractured. This relationship is fractured. And it is the disillusion of community. It is this brokenness of relationship that is the thing that truly, I believe, the Bible argues, gets broken in the fall. Humans no longer walk with God in the cool of the day. They hide themselves, both from God and from each other. And this theme of broken relationships is carried right on down the line of the story of, of the Bible. God's relationship with humanity is fractured as humanity rebels. But because of their unwillingness to trust God's order of things and rebel, all these other types of relationships get broken also in the story. All these other types of relationships become horribly disordered. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he set the whole thing up. And the disordered relationships that occur between God and humanity then, then begin to cascade down into all other forms of human relationship. In verse 13 of that passage, there is enmity, which is a really intense word, right? Uh, enmity placed between man and woman, and their, and their relationship is now different, right? Now, we read this, uh, you can read, God pronounces what are called curses in the passage. Uh, I think a healthier way of reading this passage is to say God is making a pronouncement of the new state of being, right? That there is now, in some sense, a tension or a brokenness in the relationship between Adam and Eve. This, this couple that, were one, that where Adam once uh, exclaimed, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, there is now difficulty, there is now struggle, there is now enmity between the two. And uh, in Genesis 4, just a few chapters later, 
there are two siblings of, in, in, in order uh, called Cain and Abel, and one of them murders the other one, right? So in just the next chapter after the fall, relationship is broken to such an extent there is murder. In Genesis 9, echoing to verse 17 of chapter 3 of Genesis, the ground itself is no longer at peace with humanity during the flood, and the ground breaks open and floodwaters come up through the ground, uh, communicating to us this broken relationship that man or humanity now has with the earth itself and or with our work. Gen in Genesis 11, societies themselves fall into ruin because man in a broken relationship with God, when he gets with into, into a community with other men and women in broken relationship with God, tend to make a mess of things. Nothing in the story of the book of Genesis is going right. Everything is disordered. Everything is out of whack. And I would submit to you that the primary consequence of the fall is shattered relationships. It's shattered relationships. And we know this, right? We know this. Is there anyone in your life who you have a perfect relationship with? One person. And if you do, it's there, that's an imaginary friend, all right? I hate to break it to you. Broken relationship with God as the top priority has just caused this kind of disordered relationship and everything that comes after it. Again, this is how Stanley Grantz puts it. He says, the first sin has permanently tainted the world and has irreparably altered its human inhabitants. We no longer know the world, our co-pilgrims, our creator, and even ourselves as friends. For community has given way to enmity. Adam and Eve chose their own way by defining good and evil, placing themselves at the center of the universe, uh, choosing not to trust in their relationship with, cre with their creator. And now all of humanity bears the consequence of that action. Which is strange, right? That we bear the consequence of someone else's action. We were born into a sinful world suffering the consequences of the fall. We were born into a world where relationships are fractured, both between God and man and between man and man. And thus, in so many ways, our primary understanding of the original sin bridges us back to that first instance of broken relationship. Now, uh, people talk about w what we have inherited from Adam, pastors, theologians, people who write a lot about the Bible. And they talk about what, ha what, what had Adam really given to us? Have we inherited Adam's guilt, right? So are we literally guilty of Adam's sin? And different people will disagree about this. But uh, where I come down on it is that we have not inherited Adam's guilt. Uh, but we have most, most certainly inherited the world that Adam's guilt created, right? We do bear the consequences of other people's sins, because human beings are interconnected, right? And so Adam's sin finds its way to us kind of like ripples in a pond, right? You are not guilty of Adam's sin, right? You were, thank God, you were only guilty of your sin. Uh, uh, but you do contend with the ramifications of Adam's sin, and so do I. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we feel those ramifications in our hearts, don't we? We feel the way that our hearts and minds pull us in ways that are not good. We see the way that our sin and the sin of other people 
has come to affect us adversely and affects the lives of the people of, around us. This is what, when we talk about systematic injustice in the world, this is what we're talking about. My sin doesn't only affect me, it affects the people around me, right? Your sin affects the people around you. Adam's sin affected the whole world. People in power's sin affects even greater numbers of people. This is the way things work. A child who is born into an alcoholic family is not guilty of their parents' alcoholism. But, but that family's addiction are most certainly a consequence that that child will have to bear up under. Your, your genetic uh, predisposition towards something, right, uh, is not, you, you don't, do not bear the guilt for that. But it is in some sense passed down to you through no fault of your own. And it is true that you have to contend with it in some sense. And so we feel this sa these same ramifications in the world, don't we? Our relationships with each other and with God and even with the earth have been broken. And now we kind of go, where are we? What, what do we do with this? And so that is the story of the fall. That's the story. Sin destroyed the community God intended for his creation and we are the responsible persons. Because of the unmistakable loss of community, we do not fulfill God's design for us. Consequently, we are alienated from our own true selves. We are simply not who we were meant to be. Good night, right? That's <laughs> we're going to end it on a positive note. That's the problem. That's the problem, and it's truly important that we understand the problem. But it's also important that we, uh, we understand the cure as well, I think. A diagnosis is good, but a, but a cure or a prescription is better, isn't it? And the story of the Bible does an incredible job of outlining the problem for us, but it does even more than that. It also talks to us about God's remedy for this problem. We see it starting off in the story in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, God makes this incredible move towards humanity when he reaches out to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And, you're gonna, and he tries to reestablish relationship with humanity. He says, you're going to be a people, who, your family's going to be a people who represent me in the earth, trying to get back to that first picture. But Abraham falls short, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, that next week. But we see the true climax of the story when, when God himself in the person of Jesus comes to earth and takes on flesh and lives among us in order to reestablish relationship. You see, in the story of the Bible, man, humanity, makes this choice, and we are irreparably broken in some sense. But it is always God in the story. Read it over time and time and time again. God is going towards his people. He's always reapproaching Israel whenever they sin, whenever they, whenever they go astray, whenever they commit some horrible type of apostasy. It is always God sending another prophet, communicating another truth, uh, going out of his way to communicate his long-suffering and his love for these people, reaching out through time and space to reestablish relationship. And in the person of Jesus, we have this beautiful picture of God 
in the very flesh, coming to humanity to reestablish relationship. And that is why it is the climax of the story of the Bible. You know, the writers of the New Testament of the Bible tie Jesus and Abraham together, or not Abraham, but Jesus and Adam together in this kind of representative way. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul uh, is talking about the work of Jesus in healing our sin and brokenness, and he makes that connection between Adam and Jesus explicit. This is what he says. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as, at, for as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus, in the story of the Bible, is the second Adam. The one who lives a life that our ancestors and that we ourselves could not the one who is able to show us the true, what true and connected relationship with, with God actually looks like. And it is in his death and resurrection that he wins victory, total cosmic victory over sin and death. What was broken in the world through Adam is mended through the work of Christ. In Adam all died, in Jesus all, all are raised to life. And so the question for us this morning, looking at the story of the fall, is are we going to sit in our broken condition, right? Are we going to stay that way? When God has come to us, whoop, don't kick that, in the, as a lifeline in the person of Jesus to, to reestablish relationship. Now, if you're like me, so often you take this, the, the gift of Jesus and his uh, desire to reconnect us in relationship to the Father as we take it for granted, right? We don't, we don't see it for what it truly is, that it is a restoration of our hearts and minds, and that is a, that is a gift from God that, of God, of a God who was willing to reach down through time and space to actually incarnate himself in the form of a person, in order to communicate God's love to us in flesh and bone. And so often we turn away from it. So often we walk away from it. So often we don't see it for what it truly is. And then we just sit. We sit in our brokenness. We sit in our fall. We sit in our corrupted hearts. And we don't, uh, and we just kind of wallow in it like pigs in the slop. And we don't know that there has been provided for us a lifeline in the person of Jesus that can come to us and communicate care and concern that leads us with uh, generosity and with grace and with kindness to the very heart of a God who we have been estranged from for our entire lives. Jesus came to end the estrangement of our wayward hearts and to reconnect us to the Father. And so this morning, I just want to do this right where we are. Um, if everyone would bow their heads and close their eyes. If you're in this place this morning, and you're feeling estranged from God, and that estrangement from God very often also feels like a kind of disconnection from my true self, right? If you're in this place this morning, and you're, you feel estranged from God, and you need to reconnect to the lifeline of relationship that is the person of Jesus. Would you just raise your hand this morning in this place? Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to pray for you this morning that you would put your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole being back into this relationship with a God who loves us, that you would put your faith and your trust in the person of Jesus, and that, that, that as you do that, your heart and your mind would be renewed, made new in the image of, of Jesus, God's Son, and that you would step in in a more full sense into that relationship and that you would be reconnected with God through his Son. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you did not leave us in our broken state, but rather you reached out through time and space in the person of Jesus, and you made a connection with us. We pray this morning, God, uh, for those who raise their hand that that feel as though they need uh, a more vibrant connection with Jesus this morning, that they want to reconnect to this very source of life, to the purpose of life. God, I pray that you would come to them that they would, uh, that they would uh, lean on you, Jesus. They would see you as the one who leads them, uh, that leads them into relationship with Jesus, leads them into the true reality of who they are. And for all of us this morning, God, I just pray that you would make us a people who don't wallow in our sin, who don't, who don't, uh, who don't just sit in our current state of brokenness, but that we would accept the free gift, the free initiative of God's grace that comes to us in the person of Jesus. And that as we go from this place today, we would walk in that. We would walk in that reconnected relationship with with the creator of all. And that that would give our lives hope and meaning and purpose. And we would go out of this place today with a buoyant hope, knowing that we are bent, that we are uh, twisted, but that in the person of Jesus, All things have been made new. All things have been made new. We pray it now in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Uh, Two things quick. uh, Just a reminder, if you're coming to our business meeting next week and you have children, uh, you have to sign up. If you don't sign up, uh, there might not be child care. So uh, please sign up for that. Uh, And the second thing, oh, yes, first Sunday of the month. Uh, Could I have a couple ushers stand at the back? We're going to receive... Our, uh, our compassion offering today. At the, the first Sunday of every month, we just ask for, the, uh, for those of you who have a couple spare dollars that you just throw it in the offering as you leave. Uh, this goes into our compassion fund to care for uh, those in our community who need a little bit more assistance. All right? All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being at church today. It means a lot to me. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we'll do that individually. All right. Thanks. Something big.